turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, first of the historical accounts of Jesus. We'll get there in just a moment. Last Sunday, if you were with us, you'll remember that we spent time studying the story of Jesus and a paralyzed man and four faith-filled friends who sought to get that man one step closer to Jesus. And afterwards, we connected some of the lessons that we saw there into this overall orienteering that we're trying to do together. We, we had a backpack metaphor that we used to see this singular aim, as you heard from Pastor Jim this morning, of growing one step closer to Jesus We talked about how that happens in a gentle environment of the good news and safety and time being an environment where anyone can grow one step closer towards Jesus. If you you haven't heard those sermons, I would encourage you to go back into the beginning of uh, the uh, latter couple weeks of March and the first part of April where you can hear where we unpacked what that gentle environment looks like all towards now having these three pathways of growth that we can move one step closer to Jesus. And then I teased out this idea that we now want to move into talking about eight next steps in order to grow closer to Jesus. What's the way in which we do that as disciples and followers of Jesus? We want to walk up. That's not, oh, okay, sorry. (laughs) I got distracted by the slide that was on the back there. Um, so that's, that's where we're going, and now we want to move into these eight next steps. These steps were born out of a process in my own life about four or five years ago where I started to think through, what does Jesus really require me of me as his disciple? What are, what are the essential practices that he expects me to be engaged in? And I don't, what I want to make sure of right off the bat here is that you don't hear this. So when we say next steps or I say there's eight next steps, this is not one of those sermon series where it's like three ways to be happier, you know, 14 ways to have a better marriage. It's, it's not that kind of a thing. That's the first thing I want you to know out of the gate. These aren't boxes that we're going to be checking off like, okay, there's one step, I got that done. Here's another step, I got that done. Now I'm ready to go. Now I'm a perfect disciple of Jesus. The other thing you have to understand about these steps is that they're not linear. Now the first couple are kind of linear because they're foundational. Reading your Bible and talking to God, those are foundational to everything else that we do as disciples of Jesus. But the other things, the other practices that we're going to look at, they don't have to happen in a row. So as we make our way over the next eight weeks, what I want you to do is be praying and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what's the next step God is asking me to take a part of. Because that's the other thing that I think is really fun about these things is that they're equally applicable to those who already know Jesus and to those who don't yet know Jesus. Any, as a Christian, right, we can say in our, in our time following Jesus, I'm, I'm sure you will admit there are times where you really felt like reading your Bible was engaging and it grabbed you and it gripped you and then you had those seasons where you read your Bible and you walked away from it and you couldn't remember a word that you just read, right? Like, so maybe today when you hear 
read your Bible as a next step, you're going to be like, God, yeah, I want you to use that in my life. My time in the Word has been dry. Will you help move me closer to Jesus and open my eyes in new ways to reading my Bible? The other thing about these is that I, I think that as we practice these things, part of growing closer to Jesus, maybe another little thing I want to add here, is we want to grow closer to Jesus in both proximity and likeness. Proximity and likeness. It's kind of like when you think about as a married couple, when you've spent years together. We say that, right? We say, oh, aren't we growing so much closer together? That's what we mean when we say growing closer to Jesus. I think about that as this last week, I celebrated 32 years of marriage to this lovely lady right here. And really what you're doing is like, Susan, we're so glad you made it. Well done. <laughs> Fabulous. And the other thing is that we want to grow closer to Jesus in his likeness, right? Like we just saying that, that we, we would look more like him. Isn't that the other kind of funny thing that you see about married couples? Don't they, after a lot of, a lot of years, you go like, man, you guys are kind of like starting to look like each other. Which again, I'm sorry, sweetie. <laughs> but we want to grow closer in likeness to Jesus. So that, that is what these eight practices are about. Let me give you another metaphor. There, the other way that I think about these is that they're kind of like DNA, right? DNA is something that makes up the building blocks of nearly all organisms. And you need all of the components of DNA in order to have life. And not only that, you need them organized in a certain way in order to have life. You can't just kind of pile them up in whatever way you want, and then that's a human, right? Like they have to work in a certain, maybe another metaphor would be helpful to you. Think about like, it used to be when I was a kid and you wanted a bike, you would go to Target or you'd go to Walmart and you would buy like a box, right? And you would take all the components and you would lay them on the ground. And if you were a woman, you would take out the directions. If you were a man, you would leave those in the box. And when you look at, when you look at all those components for a mountain bike, say, do you have a bike? No, you don't have a bike yet. You just have the components for a bike. So then you have to start following the directions and putting that together in a certain way, in a certain order, so that when you get to the end, now you, you can see, there I have a bike. If I don't have the gear on the bike, I don't have a bike yet. If I don't have the steering wheel on the bike, I don't have a bike yet. And similarly, these practices, I submit to you that Jesus is going to reveal to us as we make our way through the Gospels and hear from him, if you don't have all of these practices operating in a particular way, you may not have a functioning disciple of Jesus. You may not even have a disciple of Jesus. Jesus. And the sobering thing about these eight practices, and this is really important. Listen to me now. The sobering thing is sometimes you can actually have all of the eight practices and still not have a disciple of Jesus. Because in order to have a disciple of Jesus, right, we need the Holy Spirit now to come and to animate and to empower all of these practices working together so that life truly is there. So even as we have these practices, what we're always praying is, now Holy Spirit, come and anoint these things as I'm trying. Bring me, show me, reveal to me Jesus through these practices. So here they are. Read your Bible. Talk to God. Come and see. Go and share. 
celebrate, connect, join our family, and give. Those are the eight practices. So with that review and intro, now we're ready to get into the first of these eight. Read your Bible. Let's, before we do that, let's pray. Speak, O Lord. Because your words are the words that matter. And so by the power of your spirit, take your word, plant it deep in our hearts this morning. Get yourself glory. Show us Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 1, then Jesus, okay, so it's important for you to know the then, what just happened, he'd just been baptized. The, the Father, the, the heavens had split, the Holy Spirit had descended upon Christ, the Father had said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then, as he came up, out of the river, went through the river Jordan and came up out. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is God's word. In Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore writes this, when Jesus walked out from his baptism into the desert, the Bible tells us that he was tracked down by the devil, the old serpent of Eden. And just as in Eden, Satan offered Jesus food. You just saw it there in verse three. If you are the son of God, the devil said, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What Satan prompted Jesus to do was to provide for himself, to feed himself, or rather to use the spirit of God to feed himself. And when offered the chance to satisfy his hunger, Jesus repeated to, to the devil an ancient passage of scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Often Christians see this as just a reminder that like Jesus, we should memorize some Bible verses. Be ready to deploy them in a time of temptation. There's certainly some truth to that. Jesus clearly had memorized the book of Deuteronomy. These were the words that he was quoting that you heard Pastor George just read to you from chapter 8. But there was far more to what was going on in Jesus quoting those verses than mere memorization. Jesus, in his response, showed that he recognized what was happening around him and that he was repeating another story. And he was saying to this dark power before him, I know who you are and I know what you're doing and I know who I am and I know what I am doing. And Jesus knew that, friends, 
because Jesus knew the whole story of God. And what we're about to learn from him in this short passage is three things. One, how to orient yourself in the story, how to understand your part in the story, and how to truly live. So first, how to orient yourself in the story. The text is clear. Jesus was led into the wilderness by God, by the Holy Spirit of God. It was his design. Further, it was his design that Jesus would fast for 40 days and 40 nights. And then this massive understatement, (laughs) he was hungry. That's really important, family, for you to see because I think that often in the church we have we've underemphasized the reality that Jesus is fully man and fully God fully man and fully God so when he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry it's like anybody ever fast from all food and only drink water for 40 days and 40 nights It's likely that none of us has ever been hungry like Jesus was in this moment. And it wasn't simply a matter of discomfort. He was probably in real physical jeopardy in this moment. And isn't it always when we're at our weakest that Satan attempts to strike this old serpent from Eden? And do not overlook here the decision of the devil to bring up bread This is a calculated move. Jesus is a man of the Middle Eastern first century and bread was a dietary staple. Every single day he ate bread. Jesus would come in from the time he was a little boy to his mother making bread over a fire. I mean, can you imagine like kind of dark, crusty, flaky outside of a bread and then you crack that open, right? And you can see the steam rising up from inside of it and you slap a little butter on there, some honey, some extra crunchy peanut butter because that's what Christians eat. And then you, like, because isn't that what bread is in today's world? It's just a medium to transport other things into your mouth. And so do you, listen, don't you think At like day 10 of no food, Jesus is thinking about bread. Warm bread like his mom would have made for him after working with his father, a carpenter, all day. This is a calculated move by the serpent. And he utters, he looks around and says, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Now, again, right? We're learning this at Grace, right? We got to get our imaginations on. We got to get ourselves in the story. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was walking over North Backbone. Right, you walk over North Backbone or Little Rainbow, all these trails that I'm getting to know. And we're familiar with the kind of environment that Jesus was in right there. You walk across North Backbone, what do you see strewn all around you? Rocks, stones, everywhere you look. So, So think about this, right? Jesus, 40 days without food, incredibly hungry. The devil bringing bread, such good bread, scrumptious bread to mind, and then looks at a landscape littered with stones and says, turn them all to bread. Now, why does he do that? Because he knows that Jesus has the power to do exactly that, right? Because we've read the rest of the story. 
We know that Jesus is going to do what? He is going to feed thousands with bread. He has the power to turn every one of those stones into scrumptious, beautiful, lovely bread to satisfy his hunger. And all he needs to utter is a word. If you are the Son of God, he hisses. Dang, this guy, this guy's good. But don't be fooled. This temptation of Satan and test, this test from the Holy Spirit who led Jesus to this place is not about, okay, don't forget that in the story, right? He was led into the wilderness too fast for 40 days and 40 nights. You don't think that the Holy Spirit knew what was gonna happen? That this wasn't set up by the Father? But it's not about bread. The temptation is about how Jesus sees himself in the story. What Jesus understands about who God is as his Father and who Jesus is as a son. What Satan is saying to Jesus is this. You're a child of God, right? You are his son, and that means you deserve a certain kind of life, Jesus. Why not? What kind of father would want his son to starve in the desert? What kind of father wouldn't provide something as simple as bread? Go on. Just go ahead. Turn the stones into bread. And he knows he could, but because he knows the whole story, he is orienting himself in the story. You see, Jesus knows what the devil is up to because he saw the same tricks in the garden. He watched when that story unfolded. Eve was also appealed to by the serpent through food. Satan held out the possibility to her. She saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food, beautiful to the eyes, able to make her wise. And just like Jesus, Eve had the power, right, as royalty, as a queen, as a daughter of the living God to grasp that food. But just like here in the wilderness, in the garden, the issue wasn't food. It was fatherhood and the goodness of God. What Satan was doing with Eve was challenging her understanding of who God was and who she was in relationship to whom? To him. Do you remember what he said? The serpent? Did God really say? You won't really die. God knows that when you do this, when you eat, you'll be like him. The issue is he's holding out on you. He's keeping something good from you. Something that you deserve as his child. Go ahead. Eat. He hissed. And in that moment, Eve starts to see God not as a father, but as a rival. And so she struck out her hand to grab what she thought he was holding back from her. Her desires, Satan said, were a more reliable guide to what she needed than what God said. And what Jesus knows in this moment, as he orients himself in the story, is that he is stepping into the same hunger that Eve had, the same temptation that Eve had. 
He understands his part in the story. He has been, he's being tested for he's been led here by his father. And unlike Eve and the first Adam, he is not going to fail the test. He will not place his desires over the father, but he will submit his desires to the father. So Jesus answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. Where is it written? Well, as we know, Deuteronomy 8, what George read for us. So once again, he's orienting himself in the story, in the words of God. He's read and he knows his Bible. And just as he stepped into the temptation of Eve and her hungers and desires, he now steps into the temptation of another of God's children. A son who was also led into the wilderness. A son who was also being tested by his father. A son named Israel. And Jesus plucks from a sermon this word so that he can get himself oriented in that story and he can get all of us oriented in that story. Do you see the similarities here? They were brought through a sea into a wilderness. Jesus was brought through a river into a wilderness. They were brought there to be tested and learn that man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus is being brought to be tested that he will not live by bread alone. He gets it. He needs to see and does that the words of God are a more reliable guide to what he needs than his own desires. See, testing is sometimes necessary. Testing is sometimes good for us because it not only reveals our character, but it refines our character. Testing shows us what and who is truly important to us. And we know from the story of Deuteronomy that Israel failed the test, didn't they? It became clear what was truly important to them. And like all of the other cultures around them, they put their own desires over the desires of God. And Jesus will have none of it. He will not place his desires over the Father's. He will not doubt the goodness of his Father's plan. And he will trust that the Father has him right where he wants him. Jesus understands and wants more bread than Satan can provide. He wants bread in fellowship with his father, whereas Satan wants an orgy-like meal wolfed down alone in the wilderness. And so Jesus refuses the temptation and passes the test and he walks out of the wilderness and if you continue to read the story as he goes through two more temptations from the evil one he walks out of the wilderness as the triumphant son of God as the beloved son of God one step closer to his father knowing how to truly live that man does not live by bread alone or anything else other than God alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and then I think you know what Jesus got because he passed the test in 411 when angels came ministering to him. I just imagine that they brought him bread. Don't you think so? As a reward? Because that's how God rolls. It's not either or. It's both and. Do you see that in the text? Did he, he doesn't live by bread alone, but also from, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The issue is, 
Where's the priority? So, what does it look like for us to have a God-shaped, a Word of God-shaped life, a story-shaped life? I, I hope you've seen that it's not by merely memorizing a particular scripture, but it's by understanding through the words of God how to orient yourself in the story and to see what's going on around you rightly because of the Word of God. It's kind of like having a heads-up display in your brain everywhere you go. I think one of the greatest examples of this is an old movie called The Matrix, and, and maybe some of you have seen The Matrix here. And in that movie, uh, there was this, what they were discovering is that they were kind of living in this thing called the matrix and it was this computer code and when they would look at a screen they would see all this computer code down go down on the screen all these letters like quickly going but if you knew what to see when you looked at that you could see all of life you could see people operating and everything that was reality was expressed in the words and I think that's just a wonderful metaphor that that's how I want to see I want to see the words of God helping me understand the reality that is all around me always. So yes, I do. It is very helpful, right? The word tells us to put the word in our hearts that we might not sin against God. But better, don't forget, don't take it in bits and chunks and pieces. Understand the whole story because it's so much easier, isn't it, to remember stories than necessarily sentences and paragraphs. It's the larger story, the landscape of creation all the way to when Jesus comes back and how I am a part of this grand story and adventure and then I can live my life as I, as I know that word. It operates like this. When you, when you know the words of the Bible, if I am angry, the word tells me, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. If I am worried or anxious, the word tells me that God will take care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. Don't you think he will take care of you? It tells me that he knows every hair on my head and by my worry, I can't even change one of these many gray hairs back to the blonde that they were when I was younger. So why worry? If I am afraid, the word tells me when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. If I am afraid of man, the word tells me not to fear man, for what can man really do to you? Fear God, for he can cast both body and soul into hell. If I am afraid of how those in authority are ruling over us, the word tells me that the king's heart is like streams in the hands, streams of water in the hands of God. If I am concerned about the direction of our country, the word tells me to pray for kings and for those who are in high positions that I may live a godly and quiet life. If I fear the future, the word promises me that one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth and I will dwell with Jesus there. If I find myself worried about my material possessions, the word tells me not to put my hope in treasures on earth where moss and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but to put your treasures in heaven where they're safe and they can't be stolen. If I find myself incredibly tired and weary, the word holds out the promise that even youths go tired and weary, but we shall mount up with wings as eagles. We shall run and not be weary. We shall walk and not faint. If I am burdened down by the cares of this world, the word tells me, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If I wonder what direction in this life I should take, the word tells me, ask for wisdom and it will be granted to you. If I am worried about 
about the state of this church family, how we are doing. If we're going to succeed in all these things we're talking about this fall, the word tells me that Christ has built his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If I am upset by evil that I see around me, feeling like I'm losing the fight, the word tells me that in this world I will have trouble, but take care because he has conquered the world. If I am surrounded by friends for whom things are going really, really well, the word tells me rejoice with those who rejoice. If I have friends whose lives are hard and falling apart, the word tells me to weep with those who weep. If I find that there's a hardness for them that includes death, the word tells me that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for God is with me. If I find myself weeping in grief, the word tells me that he stores up every tear that falls from my cheek in a bottle. If I am find myself wondering if God loves me, the word tells me that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If I wonder if God likes me, if he delights in me, the word tells me that he rejoices over me with gladness, that he exalts over me with singing. If I am wondering why we would even gather, like Pastor Jim said, actually for 52 Sundays out of a year, the word tells me not to forsake the gathering of yourselves together. If I'm wondering why we should sing on a Sunday morning, the word tells me, make a joyful noise to the Lord. If I'm curious why we have a worship band, the word tells me to make that noise with song, sound the tambourine, make alive the melody of the lyre, bring out the horn, pipe, harp, drum, dance. Do I see some Baptists? God's word says dance, tango, jitterbug, whatever you got, bring it. If I wonder why there should be a sermon, the word tells me preach the word in season and out of season, whether it is popular or not. If I wonder if I should care about ethnic harmony, the word shows me that God cares about it and I should do because one day there will be every tribe and language and nation and tongue gathered around, moving one step closer to Jesus, praising his name. If I see an immigrant in our city, the word tells me to love the sojourner and the foreigner and the refugee. If I wonder what that means, the word tells me that I should provide for them out of what God has provided for me. If I want to know how to respond to those who persecute me, the word tells me, bless them. If I want to know how to treat my enemies, the word tells me, love them. If I'm wondering about marriage, the word tells me, single guys, it's a good thing to have a wife. If I desire to know how to be a good husband, the word tells me to lay down my life for my wife, loving her as Christ loved the church. If I'm wondering about having kids, the word tells me be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If I want to know how to be a good father, the word tells me not to provoke my child to anger and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and kids to not spare the rod. If I want to know how to be a good son, the word tells me to honor my father and my mother with no expiration date on that command. If I'm trying to decide if I should live 
in this pathway of community that Pastor Jim talked about, the word tells me that two are better than one for if one falls, the other will lift him up and carry him. We are better together, family. If I'm wondering how I should eat, the word tells me to do everything to the glory of God. If I'm wondering how I should relate to my boss at work, The word tells me I should work for her like I'm working for Jesus. If I'm wondering if I should mow the lawn and trim back my gardens, the word tells me to exercise dominion over the earth, which I did yesterday, and it was awesome. Do you see? Is that enough? I got more. If I feel lonely and alone, the word tells me that Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. If I feel friendless, the word tells me Jesus has not only called me a servant, but he's called me his friend. If I feel the weight of my sin, which I do so often, the word tells me. That Jesus is my Passover lamb who takes my sin away. I long to be righteous, which I do. The word tells me that Jesus died on the cross so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. If I feel in danger, the word tells me that Jesus is my rescuer. If I feel I need saving, the word tells me that Jesus is my savior. If I feel like I owe God something, the word tells me that Jesus has canceled the record of my debt and he has nailed it to the cross. If I am soul thirsty, the word tells me that Jesus is the water that quenches all of my thirst. And if I am soul hungry, the word tells me that Jesus is the bread of life. Do you see how to truly live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Worship team, would you come up? As they do that, let's pray. Father God, your word tells us that it is far to be far more treasured than silver or gold or any other treasure that we can imagine. Because as we've just discovered with just a few areas of our lives, it's, it's not the end. So we want to be careful here. We don't, we don't want to worship the Bible. We worship you. And so this book is a doorway to you. A doorway to truly living in you, growing closer to you and more like you. Use it in our lives, we pray. Amen.